morning, everyone. It's an honor to be here. Uh, our scripture reading this morning is Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 through 10, beginning in our church Bible on page 575. Please be stand if you are able, as we read from the Old Testament. There shall come forth a shaft from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity from the make of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his lions. The wolf shall dwell with the lamp, and the leopard shall lie down with the young god, and the calf and the lion and the fire calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the wind child shall put his hand on the adder's den. There shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal from the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Please be seated. Thanks to Cass for reading. We come to our next chapters in Isaiah. Let's pray as we come to the Bible this morning. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word, says the psalmist. Father, we do on our saner days also long for your salvation. Even on the worst of days, when you are our only hope, perhaps that is when we are most in our right minds. Lord, would you help us this morning to recognize that this is true, that our only hope comes through your word, through the Bible to us, through what it says about Christ through our expectation and our hope that the Holy Spirit himself would speak to us from you this morning. Lord, would you open our eyes that we might see wonderful things in your word. In Christ's name, amen. This is um, not a text that you often hear preached. It's um, the first time I've actually come across it being preached in a church. And when you're most likely to hear this rather odd prophecy uh, of the animals and the children is actually at Christmas, not as a text that's going to be preached on, but as a text that is read as part of a service of lessons and carols. And it's done, it's included because it's part of the Christmas story. It's seen as that, it's something to do with Jesus. But what exactly do these pictures of animals at peace 
have to do with Christ? What's the significance of lions and lambs lying down together and the child playing by the hole where the snake lives? How and what do these things mean? And if they are a prophecy, when will they come true? We all of us uh, have seen in Isaiah excellent examples of the way that the prophets spoke, of the way that they spoke to the people within their own culture. And these are pictures, aren't they? These metaphors are not about the world that we understand, but about the world as they understood it. Pictures of farming, pictures of agriculture, pictures of wild animals. But they're also, did you notice this, they're also, despite the difference in time and culture, pictures that we can understand 27 centuries later. And I wonder if this isn't one of the reasons why God chose to to speak to the prophets of uh, Isaiah's day rather than to speak to them in our day. They were speaking, after all, to uh, a basic culture, technologically and culturally speaking. The truth is, as we learn to read them, we are reading the language of the Iron Age, not the literal language, but we are reading the way that they thought and spoke in these pictures and metaphors. And the interesting thing is it's actually easier to understand the language of the prophets and their world through these pictures than it would be for them to understand our world through our pictures. Let me give you an example of that. If you were to meet somebody from a foreign country and would tell them that your classroom this week was a zoo, that your teacher is a dragon and your brother is a pig and your dad is a night owl, they would probably go away somewhat confused, if not at least rather concerned for you. But that's the world of the prophets. That's the way that the people of his day spoke, of Isaiah's day. Lions and tigers and bears and lambs and children that were unsupervised that might be in danger. Farming life was all there was for them. It is for some of us too, thinking particularly of Ted Mollis. But it is, it is, isn't it, something that we can understand. Even if we're surprised by the imagery, we understand what it is to come across a a copperhead on our property. Or uh, we're surprised if a deer lets us get close enough to pet them. So it is with these pictures. So I want to encourage you, as we're learning to read the language of Isaiah and the metaphors of the prophets, that we resist the temptation, particularly with texts like this, to read every image as a kind of photograph of the future. Or to dismiss these things because they're difficult, because we just say, oh, that's just crazy poetic prophecy talk. No, these prophecies of the future are real and concrete in their meaning, but they are metaphors and pictures nonetheless. And we will need, as a practice, to go back to the Judah of 700 BC for the Bible's meaning before we attempt to bring it to Richmond today. So of the many things that we could explore in these two chapters as we continue to learn to speak and to to understand the language of Isaiah, there are two ideas here that I want us to focus on and to do with the biblical promise of peace through Christ. If you would turn to our readings again as Cass read them to us, the context they fall within in Isaiah 11 and 12 is the Judah of 725 BC. And you can find the context for these in the church Bibles on pages 575 and 576. 
Here are pictures then of two kinds of salvation. Two kinds of salvation as Isaiah is shown them by God. You can find the first in chapters, uh, chapter 11, verses 1 to 2 and verses 6 to 10. And that is the idea that Christ is the answer for the natural world and will one day bring it his peace. First question we might ask is, how do we know that these are pictures of Christ? It may surprise you that a preacher could be quite so uh, bold as to take an Old Testament passage and ascribe it so brazenly, uh, immediately to Jesus. But Isaiah, as we've been seeing in chapter 2 and chapter 7 and chapter 9 and chapter 11, and he will continue to do this throughout Isaiah, is being shown by God a figure who despite the peril that the two kingdoms of Judah and Israel currently find themselves in, will ultimately save his people. Isaiah is being shown a figure of a rescuer, a messiah. This is the figure of the shoot from the stump of Jesse and the same figure of a branch from his roots. What's striking about the way this figure of the shoot or as he's called here, the branch is described is that it's so consistent throughout the book of Isaiah. This is a definite person and a figure. So if we're paying attention here, we'll notice that this promised figure here is more than a metaphor. We uh, have seen in uh, Israel's history, as Isaiah has described it to us, that the uh, hope had been in a great oak of, of the hope of the kingdom of David and Solomon. This was the hope for Israel that David Solomon would expand and that under Solomon's rule that that expansion would continue. But that oak tree now seems to humanize to have been utterly demolished and ground down to a stump in the wasteland of history. And Isaiah at this point, looking at the disaster that has befallen the people of God, has seen out of that disaster, he's been shown a living and green shoot is growing as a metaphor. And that green shoot, as we've said, verse 2, you've read it, read it here, will be a person. Not simply a metaphor, not simply an idea of a rescue in the future, but a definite person. Verse 2, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Personal pronoun. What's more, notice, he shall be a branch from his roots. The H in his roots here should not be capitalized. That was my mistake. The roots, in fact, belong to Jesse, as Isaiah is describing them. Who was Jesse? You remember he was the father of David. He was the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. He was the line. The, he was a peasant himself, but from him would come the royal line of David. And even though that line appears to have been cut down, there was a shoot that is now issued from it, and there was a root to that same family tree. And who was at the very roots of Jesse's family tree? Isn't this remarkable? It's the same person here described who would be its green shoot. Who can do that? Who can be both the tree, the root of the tree, and its fruit? In historical terms, for a human being, that's impossible. But only someone who could say before Abraham was, I am, could it be true of. So this is one of those subtle pictures here of Christ himself. 
Second, what will be the impact of Messiah's ultimate coming on the natural world? Well, his kingdom, we see here, the kingdom of the shoot and the root of Jesse, will be a place of reconciled enemies in a universe where ultimately evil and danger no longer exists. I was talking to James Johnson, who's a neighbor, about the raccoons that have been terrorizing our neighborhood. Uh, he calls them trash pandas, which is precisely what they are. I was telling him that one of the trash pandas about a year ago came into my garage when I was there, and it walked upright towards me. It was quite, quite chilling, actually. Bold as you please. It was standing up in front of me, uh, in fr and I was standing in front of the cat food, blocking its path. And it was bargaining with me for the cat food. It literally extended his hand in a, in a show of kind of universal need. And when he left, a satisfied customer, because I didn't want to get in trouble with his creator, I was expecting the universal uh, creaturely sign for live long and prosper, but it, <laughs> it never came. But here's the sign in Isaiah. Wolves lying down next to succulent lambs, leopards with appetizing young goats, lions with 200 pounds of prime beef sitting next to them, and not a hint of anyone licking their lips. What is this? It is a metaphor, it is a picture of jaw-dropping reconciliation between implacable enemies. That is the message that God wants to send you about his kingdom, the way it will be. George Whitfield and others have noticed that we should have noticed this ourselves from nature, that something has evidently gone wrong. In his sermon, The Method of Grace, he says, I've often thought when I was abroad that if there was no other argument to prove original sin, the barking of a dog against us is a proof of it. For when the creatures rise up against us, it is as much to say, you have sinned against God and we take up our master's quarrel. But there, Isaiah has been shown, there in that day, the prey and the predator will finally be at peace. And here is the secondary picture of heaven, the baby playing innocently and safely, left in security by her parents there. And as for this menagerie, a little child shall lead them. Now don't ask, is that Jesus? I don't know, I don't think so. That's not the point here, right? This isn't necessarily telling you with concrete firmity that there will be tigers and lambs in heaven. We don't know. Nor do we know, for that matter, that there will be children in heaven, at least children as children. We know that there will be children, but will they look like children? We don't know. These are metaphors. They're pictures of a more profound point. And what is that point? Well, the point is that these are pictures of ultimate peace and reconciliation between creation and the creator. The root of Jesse, the creator himself, we read here, shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, because he will have lived among them. That's how they could inquire of him. And his resting place, we read here, shall be glorious. This is uh, one of those little clues in the prophets of something that has been known before and promised before. The phrase, his resting place, you will have come across it before, although it won't immediately have been obvious to you, is from Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. And that word still is the same word here as resting place. 
meaning literally the waters of my homeland, the place where I belong. It's a resting place. It's a place of rest. And how will we know that this will come about? Well, Isaiah tells us the guarantee, the signal for it has been given in this figure of the branch and the root, the person that we know as Jesus. His coming is a picture of the final mending of creation and of the Creator's reconciliation between His redeemed people and the natural world. This, I think, is precisely where the green movement and ecology in our own day has been half right and half wrong. They're surely right, right, to to say to us that there is a hope and there should be a hope for a better relationship between human beings and the natural world. And they are right to remind us that we have a duty of care and a stewardship for creation. This is not a new idea. It was given to us in Genesis at the creation. We read in Proverbs 12, a righteous man cares for the needs of his animal, even when it's chewed up his favorite college alumni hat. As someone has said, we have no liberty to do what we like with our natural environment. It is not ours to treat as we please. Why? Because it doesn't belong to us. Ultimately, we are just renters here, if you will, or at least tenants. Our landlord will return. And so we garden, don't we? We recycle, we plant trees, we watch our carbon footprint, not because some political or social movement might tell us that it needs to be so, but because we honor our creator, of whom we read in the Psalms, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The Green Movement then has been right about these things, but the church should have been saying it louder before them because of our creation mandate. Where they have been wrong, however, is to expect or promise a return to some kind of Eden within this broken world or to place the, the value of plant life or, human, or uh, animal life above human life, or to claim that it's entirely up to us or possible for us to somehow arrest the decline of this natural world towards its eventual ending. Indeed, creation itself, itself we read in Romans 8, is groaning for something better than a zero-carbon emission. It longs to be reconciled with its creator and yearning like an expectant mother for that day. And again, there's a balance here, right? We're not to trash the beautiful, absolutely unique planet that we've been given. But neither are we to place our hope of salvation in it. Who will bring about the completion of what the world was designed to be? Well, the very one of whom it was said, even the winds and waves obey him. This here, it's here in Isaiah. Even the things that we read later in the gospel, these pictures of Jesus as the completer and fulfiller of creation. So one day, because of Jesus, you and I will live on a new earth, a remade creation which will come about only by the renovating peace that Christ will bring for the natural world. Second, <clears throat> Christ is the answer for the human world and will one day, one day bring those who receive him his peace. And you can see this in these first verses at the beginning of Isaiah 11 and in Isaiah 12. <coughs> what, <coughs> what do we read? <coughs> his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, 
and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So here, Isaiah is given the picture of Messiah as judge, as conquering redeemer and restorer of God's order. If he came first as suffering messenger, this is what we learn later in Isaiah, he will return at the end of time as this conquering figure. These things were true of Jesus in the Gospels. He didn't judge people, right? This is what Isaiah is describing, that, that what we know of Christ. He didn't judge people like the world judges people by, by external appearances or by rumor, nor did he judge them with a privilege or income or with a bias against the poor. Those things were true of him during his earthly life, and they will be true of him when he comes at the end, and he will strike the earth in that day with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He will judge the earth and judge human beings as the perfect judge. Of course, there's a great deal of skepticism about this now. I suppose there always has been. If you've ever seen the movie Unforgiven, it's famous for its moral ambiguity about law and order. Clint Eastwood plays a former outlaw and a murderer who takes on a corrupt Western sheriff played by Gene Hackman to avenge the honor of a group of prostitutes. The crowd I, I used to hang out with in university English departments would tell you that the movie is a subversive meta-narrative of Western, capital W, culture, which demythologizes the central idea in Western movies, small w, that the best of men will ultimately have their sacrifices pay off and that justice will prevail in six-gun glory. I just read one of their papers on this. But it's striking, isn't it? No matter what moral relativists and Marxists will tell you, even though the good obviously will not always win out in the world, and that all, it's true that all that glitters is not gold, the hope, nevertheless, for something better has been written into our consciences and expectations, even as fallen people. The idea that there is something better, a better world, a better man, And you can be sure that truth exists. And you can be sure that justice is coming. So this is the way that God will bring about that order and that peace by the only, if you will, true lawman. As Paul told the leaders of Athens in Acts 17, now God commands all people everywhere to repent for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to everyone by raising that man from the dead. So that will be the sign of Joanah. That will be the signal of Isaiah, if you will, for the nations. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the signal that the clock is ticking and that justice is coming. But this is what God shows Isaiah about Jesus and his people. Look at verse 1 of chapter 12. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. As we close, I just want to draw out three things here that we can apply from the gospel uh, to us about the peace of Christ. First, notice something we don't often notice. Here is a promise of our and ours and Isaiah's resurrection. I wondered if you noticed this. God is speaking with deep reassurance to Isaiah, who, who after all was facing his own demise and the conquest of his own culture. Within 
within uh, a matter of years, uh, Israel to the north would have been swept away and Judah was taken into captivity. And you will say in that day, God says, and the question has been, when will that day be? When will you say these things? The answer is probably not 187 years later when the exiles returned. Isaiah's audience of 725 BC would have long since died. Now, I think we can take these things as a personal promise. And that day refers to the day when God will bring in his kingdom and finally establish his peace. And so, in that day here means the day when God will raise all who are in him to new life. And I will give thanks to you, he says, on that day. It's a reminder to us, perhaps, that God doesn't promise us heaven on earth, but he does promise us heaven with him. Second, notice, there's a picture of substitution here. I will give thanks to you, O Lord. And why to God? Well, because though you were angry with me, your anger turned away. It's natural and right to ask, with whom was God angry? Was he angry just with the prophets? Was he angry just with the hypocritical people of Israel, the false shepherds, the people who turned away and practiced false justice and worshipped uh, obscene foreign gods? No, this is for us too, isn't it? It's a profoundly personal statement by Isaiah. When the Bible talks of God's anger, it doesn't mean the kind of malicious, spiteful, or vindictive anger that we practice. It means God's predictable and uncompromising antagonism to evil. And his anger with fallen humanity is equally matched by our own natural enmity towards him. But then this amazing fact, as Isaiah describes it, what he's being shown here in chapter 12, verse 1, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away. And here we are being told is God's motive, which is love again. Notice the personal pronouns, that you might comfort me, that you might love me, that you might rescue me. So where did the anger go? Where did the penalty of justice fall? What happened to, to God's justice against human sin? How could a holy God comfort those who had been his implacable enemies and still be a God of conscience and justice? Well, this will be the work of the branch of Messiah. Through him, God will take the initiative so that we read in Ephesians 2, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So this is a picture of our acquittal. Calvin explains it. He says, the guilt that held us liable for punishment has been transferred to the head of the Son of God. And it may surprise us, but Isaiah was shown it right back at the beginning of his career, even in Isaiah 11 and 12. And finally, why must we remember this? Well, because third, there's a reassurance of comfort here. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. You can see why the book of Isaiah is described as the gospel of the Old Testament. Our comfort is this that God himself, by his own substitutionary sacrifice, is our peace. And you might ask, why is that a comfort? Well, it's a comfort because you and I contribute precisely nothing to the deal except our own sin. It is all of it God's initiative. 
It is not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent his son as a propitiation for our sin, 1 John chapter 4. And who did God give as the sacrifice to satisfy his justice to heal a breach? Well, again, he gave himself in the person of Jesus. And Isaiah, notice, speaks personally when he says he will trust and not be afraid because God himself is salvation. You know, again, reflecting on this, reflecting on the day and age in which we live, when again, right, we are being told and we are thinking to ourselves, we have much to fear. Isaiah had much to fear. He was looking at uh, the ISIS of his own day on an imperial scale that he knew for sure would overwhelm Jerusalem. But notice what Isaiah doesn't do. He doesn't make God's salvation a means to his own ends. It's not about what he needs. It's not about what God can do for him. It's about God. Because God is my salvation, I will trust. He means I will trust him and not be afraid. So as we close, let me turn to you and ask you about the struggles and fears of your own life. We have so much, it seems, to worry about. But as you and I go into each day, this is to be our comfort, Isaiah is saying. Not that there aren't things to worry about. There are. You will have troubles in this life. That won't change. But the basis of the way that we deal with worry and fear is to take it straight to the cross and to say to ourselves what is true, that God is our salvation. That because Christ has made the decision and has done the act to, to go to the cross for us, because of that expression of love, we can trust him and not be afraid. This is to be our comfort, right? That we are a sinner and with no other plea to God other than for his mercy, we can say, I trust you. I trust you. The kicker is this, if you don't do that, as Calvin said, you will tremble and remain anxious all of your life because the only other thing that you and I can bring to the table is something that we have made for ourselves. I was watching that uh, movie Braveheart, that theological masterpiece this week, and I promise I'll end with this, particularly in one of the final scenes where the French princess, you remember, comes to him in his prison cell trying to persuade him to take the uh, king's deal and save his own life. And uh, William Wallace replies this way. He says, every man dies, not every man really lives. And I was thinking about that in the wake of what Isaiah says here. You know, what a tragedy for us, for the church, given that we have been given such a great gift with which we can live fearlessly for Christ, knowing that he will never let us go you and I are the only ones, right? The church are the only ones who know that for sure. What a tragedy it would be if you and I squandered that gift in a reclusive, keep to ourselves, save ourselves kind of faith. You see, the challenge here is to trust him, to listen to what he tells you to do and to go where he might lead you because he will keep you, because he will comfort you, and because he will lead you to the day of your salvation in Christ. Let's pray.
Father, you know how we are being besieged as a church globally by the accusations and fears of a world that's out of control, of a world that is being directed by our enemy. And we are being persuaded that we should panic. Lord, help us to remember the words that you gave to Isaiah, that you are our salvation and that we will trust you and not fear. Lord, would you help us this week and even today to apply this to all of our circumstances in the hope and the joy of the Lord Jesus. Amen.